The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, as we uh, turn now to the scriptures, going again to the gospel according to Luke, uh, do grab a copy of the scriptures and open with me to Luke chapter 3. And I'll let you know that as we open up to Luke 3, this will be our, our last time going to Luke now for Seven weeks, actually, uh, because I said next week we're going to be looking at uh, a Thanksgiving theme for our worship services, and then we'll be on into Advent, and our Advent series is the women of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew's gospel, and then we'll be into the new year, and uh, then back to Luke uh, after seven weeks, as we say. Uh, But as we turn back to Luke and then wait for a season to come back, we really have the opportunity to, to look very intently at a very unique character in the narrative of redemption that we call John the Baptist. So Luke chapter 3 is all about John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. And we're going to be reading from John 3 through verse 20. And then in seven weeks, then into January, we'll take up 21 and 22. We'll just look at that in one small section because it's a very important passage. But uh, if, if you've ever uh, heard about before John the Baptist or known something about him, he's something of a, a wild figure. Matthew's Gospel describes him. Long hair, uh, eating locusts, living in the wilderness. He took a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. And uh, he's just kind of a wild figure. And really, we don't really know what to do with him except think that he's just standing in the river and getting people wet uh, in the Jordan River. But there's much more about him that we want to learn and understand that actually has a a lot of relevance for how you and I, uh, you know, 2,000 years later, need to understand the ministry of John the Baptist. So let's pray together, and then we'll hear God's Word this morning. Great God, we turn now to you as we open up the Scriptures, again confessing that we believe this to be your living Word. Father, your spirit moved Luke, the physician, to record these words for us that we might have the true testimony of Jesus Christ. So we pray now that that same spirit would come amongst us to illuminate our minds, give us understanding, to illuminate all that is darkened within us, that we might walk in obedience and in the light. So Lord, come and transform your people by your power. According to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear now the Word of God, Luke chapter 3 and the first 20 verses, John the Baptist prepares the way. This is the Word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God does indeed abide forever. So let's keep our Bibles open here as we see John the Baptist. And I know that we're used to thinking of him as John the Baptist, assuming that the Baptist is his last name, but it's just a description of his activity Uh, But I want us to see actually John the Baptist in three different ways, uh, all with the letter P, hopefully to alliterate and organize this. First of all, John the prophet, John the prophet in the first six verses, and then in verses 7 through 18, John the proselytizer, and then concluding 19 and 20, John the prisoner. So John the Baptist we see here is actually John the prophet, John the proselytizer, and John the prisoner. So first let's take up John the prophet in the first six verses. Luke is here giving us some background as time has passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Last week we saw together 12-year-old Jesus being brought by his parents to the temple, but then staying in the temple complex and his parents forgetting him and coming back to get him and that wonderful story. But time has now passed, and because Luke is such an excellent and well-researched historian as he records these details, he's giving us this regular excellent history in verse 1 that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius Caesar comes after Augustus about A.D. 14, So this is his 15th year. It's somewhere about A.D. 29, A.D. 30. So it's helpful for us to know that time has happened and time is shifting and moving forward rather rapidly between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But you may be wondering, you know, what's with all these names and all these people and places? Why is Luke bothering to tell us this? Again, you look at how the chapter opens. Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod. 
and Philip and Licinius and Annas and Caiaphas. Now, you may recognize some of those names, actually, because they're all very prominent figures in the gospel story, and they're actually cast mainly as the villains of the story, those who oppose Jesus in his earthly ministry. But as Luke lists these names, he is actually listing the geographic, political, and religious authorities, the heavy hitters of the day in the first century. These are the rulers and leaders of the glory of Rome, and these are the leaders of the Jewish establishment, the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. And you notice how Luke lists them as would have been worldwide known, these members of, again, this both political and religious establishment. But then notice how Luke sidelines them so quickly. All these important people in all their high and lofty places, the power brokers of the day, but the real story is in verse 2 that amidst all of these high people in high places, in verse 2, the word of God comes to John. That's the key thing that Luke is saying here in the beginning. That, that all these big names with all of their authority and all their prominence and all their on and on and on are just a backdrop to God's main event of the Word of God coming to John. And this is John of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, John, that we learned about in chapter 1. Again, we're used to calling him John the Baptist. But in customary Old Testament fashion, a John is actually a prophet. It's entirely appropriate to say that John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Because John is a man who has the Word of God come to him. And that's the same way the Old Testament speaks of the Word of God being given over to a prophet to then speak to the people what God has to say. Prophets are a mouthpiece of God to say to the people what God wants them to hear. And what is it that He wants them to hear? The substance is here, there in verse 3, that He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in case you know, we're not familiar, Luke does the research to say this is exactly as Isaiah prophesied some 400 years ago that there will be a voice crying out in the wilderness. Someone coming to prepare the way of the Lord in order that all flesh will see the salvation of God. So who is John? John is an Old Testament prophet on the pages of the New Testament who has come to announce the coming of the Messiah and make everybody ready to receive Jesus as He comes. And because prophets are called to speak God's Word to God's people, one of the things that regularly happens, especially in the Old Testament, but even now with John, is that people don't want to hear what the prophet has to say. God is speaking His Word to His people, and He raises up a prophet because there needs to be a prophet to the people to say, you have strayed or you have forgotten or you are walking in the wrong way. And so God raises up a prophet to speak to the people to correct them. What is the message that he is commissioned to speak? First of all, John the prophet. Now let's see the message that he speaks. John the proselytizer in verse 7 through 18. A proselytizer is another word for an evangelist, somebody who speaks with conviction that somebody else 
might likewise share in that conviction and share in the faith that they are trying to be persuaded into. And while John is probably not a case study in effective modern-day evangelism of how to talk to people and maybe even just by manners how to dress and all that, where to live type of thing. Uh, Nevertheless, John is a good case study in conviction. And his conviction is this, that Israel, the people of God, have lost their way. They have lost their way in terms of their faith and trust in God And they need to repent in order to be ready to receive the Messiah. So as we're thinking about this, of course we know that the Messiah is Jesus. But if you've ever wondered why it is that so many people, when Jesus is doing his ministry, reject him and don't believe in him and don't receive him and rather scoff and mock at him, it's for the same reason that God raised up John, because their hearts were dispositionally calcified against the truth that God is bringing a Messiah. And they think to themselves, but we're fine. We're fine. We don't, we don't need Messiah. Or if Messiah is going to come, he's surely not going to call on me to do what John is saying, that the people need to repent. And this is John's urgent word. And quite frankly, we can be honest about the fact that John is here preaching this urgent word with a severe tone. But if somebody's house is on fire, you know, across the road, you're not going to stand back and whisper to them going, excuse me, your house is on fire. You should probably get out. You're going to scream at them, right? Your house is on fire. Get out. You're going to die if you don't come out of the burning house. And that's what John is doing. He's saying to the people of Israel, "Your, your proverbial house is on fire. And you're not safe. John is shouting about repentance. See it there in verse 8? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's the Greek word metanoia. It's a compound word which means to change one's mind or to change one's understanding. It combines both the rational decision and the willful act to do something different, to change to go this direction and then stop going that direction, go 180 degrees and go the other direction. Repentance is not just a feeling. It is not just a a feeling of sorrow or sadness or guilt or culpability, but rather the manifestation of the understanding that I'm going the wrong way and I need to change and go the other direction. Do something is John's point of emphasis. Now, of course, John's father, Zachariah, said that this would be what he was boy was going to be doing. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 77, in Zechariah's Benedictus, Luke 1, 77, is when Zechariah says that you, son, speaking of John, will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now let's stop and think about this because it has very important application for us today. Everybody loves the idea of forgiveness, don't they? Everybody thinks that that's great news. But the important part of this forgiveness is that it's forgiveness from sin and transgression and law-breaking and covenant-breaking and alienation from God. Forgiveness from sin is what John is talking about. 
Everybody loves the idea of forgiveness, but when you're talking about forgiveness of sins, then you have to recognize that you have sin. And not just that you do sins, but that you are in fact a sinner. Everybody loves forgiveness until you have to realize what exactly am I being forgiven of? Not just what I do and what I don't do, but who I am as a sinner. You think about this as the way we worship God even still today, don't we? We have this call to confession every Lord's Day. Why do we do that? You think about this? Why do we do this? Because the gospel is saying to us that our reconciliation from God comes by way of our acknowledgement, our confession, our repentance. Lord, we have sinned. Lord, we are sinners. Forgive us. Have mercy. And the assurance of pardon comes to speak the word of the gospel grace to us in light of our confession and in light of our repentance. But we don't speed along right to assurance. We have to do the true work of what the gospel says in repentance to receive forgiveness. It wouldn't make sense to run right to assurance without the prior parts. And that's actually what the Jews were wanting to do because John is getting ahead of them right there in verse 8 when they're tempted to say, no, 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 but we don't need to be forgiven. We're Jewish. We're the children of Abraham. John gets ahead of that and says, do not begin to say to yourselves in verse 8 that we have Abraham as our father. For God is able to raise up even from these stones children for Abraham. He's saying you're not excused because of your heritage. You're not excused because of your identity. You're not excused from repentance. And John's message has this, you notice it, it's, it's deeply almost uncomfortable, this apocalyptic judgmental tone, especially there you see there in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And the trues that don't bear fruit are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You don't have to make very close connections before you realize what that's talking about, right? John is talking about judgment. He says the axe is being laid to the tree. It's going to be chopped down and discarded into the fire. John says this is coming. And this message has this apocalyptic theme. And he says, if you're going to be ready and if you're going to be prepared for the fact that this is coming, then you need to see real change. And so what he's saying in verses 10 through 14, whether with property ownership or tax collection or soldiers, he says, change and manifest that change in real practice. Actually, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus speaks of John the Baptist Josephus is one of the really interesting uh, narrators of Jewish history. Of course, it's not divinely inspired, but Josephus writes about the same time as the Bible's activity and history are taking place. And listen to what Josephus says about the man John. He says, He exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows, and live with reverence before God. John is this crazy figure that says you need to prepare for the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring judgment and so you must be prepared. And as he's getting all this attention, people want to know, is that you, John? You see it there in verse 18 and following. They want to know, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And John says, of course, no, but he is coming. 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, uh, which is a picture that in the first century that, uh, that even servants in the household were not required to untie sandals because it was such a dirty job, such a lowly job, that even servants weren't required, that people would take off their own shoes because it was just beneath the dignity of anybody to do that. And John says, when the Messiah comes, I'm not even worthy to do the lowliest task of untying his sandals. And, and we should be asking the question, what, what is happening here? And why does John's ministry take on this tone? And, and, and how can we understand it? And I think it's because John the Baptist, the baptizer, has this very unique role in the history of the Bible, almost as if he has a foot in each world of the unfolding narrative of redemption. You could picture it like he's got one foot in Malachi and one foot in Matthew as the dawning of the new covenant is passing on and John is in the Old Testament and he is in the New Testament almost at the same time. That through John's ministry, the kingdom of God is transitioning from a reality that used to be only future, but now it's arriving. And now it's here through what John is speaking about. John is like this hinge figure in the history of redemption to prepare the way for the people of the Messiah. Because all through the Old Testament, the question that everybody was asking was, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? Like the kids in the back seat on the long drive. Is it time yet? Are we there yet? And the answer was always no. And not yet. And not quite. But John, as it were, represents dad pulling the car into the driveway to say, we've arrived. We're here now. And the dawning of the new covenant era begins with John's announcement of preparation. And you can see how this uh, Old Testament season is reaching its sunset as the New Testament season is reaching a sunrise because the way John understands the Messiah is that he understands that the Messiah's primary role, again, is to bring judgment. So if you look at verse 17 again, when he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John sees that when the Messiah comes, he's coming to clear house, as it were, and burn out the chaff. And this is the way most Old Testament prophets spoke of the coming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord. And it's interesting, isn't it? that that is not what characterizes Jesus' first coming. It is what characterizes His future second coming, but it is not what characterizes His first coming. So that's why John is this interesting figure where again it says in verse 18, with these exhortations, he is preaching good news to the people. He is announcing the gospel to the people. But I find it so fascinating that even John, who is technically Jesus' cousin, who is the foremost prophet and evangelist of the new covenant, even John the Baptist doesn't quite grasp the fullness of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And I like to think about it this way. I hope this is helpful to you. 
John is here speaking about the fact that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring judgment. And that's true. That's true. But we know from the narrative of the unfolding redemption of God's story and salvation that the first time Jesus comes, He doesn't come to bring judgment. He comes to bear judgment. So that all who place their hope in Him have their judgment borne by Him so that when He comes again, it is to bring judgment. But He first comes to bear judgment. Then He comes to bring judgment. But John sees these so overlapped, just like Old Testament prophets, that they only see one reality. But the fullness expands that John is calling the people to repent in preparation for the coming Messiah. John the prophet, John the proselytizer, and now John the prisoner. Verses 19 through 20. John is declaring this message all through the region of the Jordan. And it comes to the ears of a man introduced to us there in verse 1, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, otherwise known as Herod Antipas. Not to be confused with Herod the Great. That would be his father. Herod the Great is the Herod of the birth narratives that ordered all Jewish males to and under to be killed in Bethlehem in an attempt to snuff out the Messiah. That was Herod the Great. This Herod is Herod Antipas, his son, who's actually a scoundrel in his own right too, and it appears that John is calling him on it because Luke writes in verse 19 that John reproved him for Herodias, his brother's wife. Now, there are historical details that Luke doesn't mention about this, but that we should know. The basic summary here is that Herod is a tetrarch of Galilee, so he is a Jewish citizen commissioned by the Roman government to oversee this land. And Herod actually steals his brother's wife, marries her, and so his sister-in-law becomes his wife. And actually, the really crazy thing about their family tree is that not only is Herodias technically Herod's sister-in-law, she's actually also his niece too. So Herodias is Herod's niece and sister-in-law, now wife, And what does John have to say about all this? John calls it what it is. Let's just say that John is not invited to Herod's prayer breakfasts, right? Okay? John's ministry is to call Israel to repent, and that includes Herod. John calls it what it is, a violation of God's law, and tells the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod, you need to repent of your sins. What does it get, John? Locked up prison sentence that will actually be an inevitable death sentence because Luke chapter 9 reports that John is going to be beheaded uh, according to Herod. Now why does Luke tell us all this? Because John is this, again, admittedly crazy figure whose ministry seems to be a massive failure in one sense, but John has this important key role because the Messiah is just about to be revealed. What's coming in Luke's Gospel account is next the baptism of Jesus, His temptation in the wilderness, and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And to get ready for that, the people need to be prepared by way of repentance. Why? Because a Savior is only good news to people who know they have something to be saved from. 
A Savior is only good news to people who know that they are sinners. And this is what the entire Old Testament law and sacrificial system was designed to do to tell the people that you need to be reconciled to God by way of atonement and forgiveness for your sins. This is still true to us today. And people have a hard time swallowing it still today just as they did 2,000 years ago. Everyone loves the good news of forgiveness. But when you're clear about what you need to be forgiven from, people start getting massively offended. You're telling me I'm a sinner? And John says, yes. But the good news is that if you embrace what is true, if you, as it were, take the hard medicine, then you can be truly healed. Because you can only be forgiven of your sins when you acknowledge them. And the Messiah is coming to do that very thing. In fact, Martin Luther was very key on this because the very first of his 95 theses read like this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of the Christian should be one of repentance. So this wide-eyed, long-haired, locust-eating, desert-dwelling, crazy guy named John saying repent looks crazy, but it's the wisdom of God, actually. So the Scriptures are here asking, do I have need of repentance? And the answer is, yes, of course. Do you have need of repentance? The answer is, yes, of course. Repentance is not something that you do once along the way and then move on to other things. The fastest way to be healed is to acknowledge that you're sick. The fastest way to be reconciled to God is to admit your alienation. And the fastest way to embrace the truth of the gospel is to confess your sins and find mercy in Jesus Christ. Or to put it finally, Thomas Watson said in the 17th century this way, there are two essential graces for the life of a Christian believer, and it is repentance and faith. Watson says, these are the two wings by which the Christian believer flies to heaven. Repentance and faith by which the Christian believer flies to heaven. So we should see in this, John the prophet, John the proselytizer, John the prisoner, in one sense, his ministry is not a massive success. But that's because God commissioned him to do a very unique role to prepare the people. And as we stand on the precipice of a holiday season and the Advent season and all the rest, the message is still the same for us. That our hearts must be ready to receive Christ, as it were, regularly as we acknowledge our need of the forgiveness of our sins and the wonderful grace that it has been supplied completely in Jesus. So friends, hear the word of John, which is the word of God. Let us repent of our sins. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we hear these words and they land upon us as John spoke them, something of a hammer to us, but they are a, a velvet hammer because it leads to life and it leads to godliness and it leads to forgiveness and it leads to hope. Oh, Lord, in our nature, apart from the Spirit, we do not delight to repent, but transformed by Your grace and through Your Spirit, Lord, give us eyes that see and ears that hear this Word and delight in it, we pray for Jesus' sake.
Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.